you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny, motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now, here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 76 of the Forge of Freedom. Uh, today, I have back in the studio, Matthew Duffy. Uh, of course, we, we had Matthew on the show in episode 74, just uh, two episodes ago, talking about his book, 10 Natural Steps to Training the Family Dog, Building a Positive Relationship, which you can see here on your screen if you're watching by video. Of course, uh, if you're not, uh, if you're just listening to the podcast uh, in audio form only, you won't see the book. But uh, I always, like I always do, I link to the book and, and any other resources that we talk about in the show notes to the podcast. So uh, first of all, Matthew, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Alex. Again, pleasure being here. I really enjoy talking to you. It uh, comes very naturally, but uh, the subject matter also is uh, forever fascinating to me, so I'm more than willing to um, regurgitate what I've learned over 44 years to anybody who's willing to listen. But I really enjoy talking to you, like the uh, format of your program, so very happy to be here. Yeah, it was, I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, last week, and uh, looking forward to finishing up our chat about your your book uh, here this week with part two. But uh, if you would go ahead and I know we talked about it a little bit last time. Talk about what else you've got going on. I know you've you've got the training facility there at Duffy's, uh, and you've you've also written two other books. If you want to go ahead and mention those again yeah. before we get back into the the meat of the the subject for today. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Uh, book two is uh, called Dog Training and the Eight Faces of Aggressive Behavior. It's a follow-up to this 10 Natural Steps book. It is a how-to book. Um, and the how-to is managing. And rather than using the word aggression, uh, if you uh, insert assertive behavior rather than aggressive behavior, now it can be much more universally applied. And that initially was the title plan, but because of editing and um uh, marketing, aggression was the word chosen. And what I've done is in that Eight Faces book, um, broken down uh, the aggressive behaviors that are typically seen with Canis familiaris around the families, around the park, or at the vet's office. I've broken into eight categories of triggers, really. So the aggressive response is the aggressive response. But there are eight distinct triggers that will bring out this aggressive response. And the triggers actually determine how you approach managing that aggressive response. It's the trigger, not the aggressive response itself, that identifies what the approach is. And that is very counterintuitive to folks that don't work on that every day of the week. So that the Eight Faces book is... Um, very much uh, a succinct work. It's written so that you don't have to read anything extra and you can get right into, oh, my dog is displaying possessive aggression, territorial aggression, defensive aggression, 
you can then identify, once you got the trigger, how we're going to approach the behavior shaping. Because in, without going too far, it, it's hard place, uh, it's hard sometimes for me to find a place to cut off because they're very important. Oh, you're uh, fine connective thoughts here that folks need to put together or else they're left hanging with the wrong impression. The aggressive response from a dog is part of his inherent genetic makeup. He's predisposed to react to certain triggers in a assertive or hostile manner. You cannot remove that from a dog's makeup. So what we teach a dog is when he's triggered how to better manage that, much like a human being, how to better manage that surge of energy and uh, emotion. And so knowing what the trigger is, we can then um, set up repeat experiences where we can practice uh, behavior shaping. And I need to tell you this too, even as we get into the 10 natural steps, everything we do at my training center is based on pure science. It is based on the psychology that you learn about in uh, school, uh, classical conditioning, Pavlov's uh, salivating dogs, uh, how that natural stimulation was replaced by an artificial stimulation. And this uh, concept of, you think of B.F. Skinner, uh, instrumental uh, conditioning uh, so that we can shape a dog's behavior by connecting, associating consequences with choices. And so we can be more active in how we uh, bring about uh, the uh, change in behavior rather than the passive replacing one stimulus for the next. We can actually set up learning experience based on, hey, my canine friend, you choose which direction would you like to go? You want to go this direction? Negative consequence, but hey, you're free to do that. I like you either way you go. You go this direction, positive consequence. Like we said last time, you're far smarter than a turtle. Which would you rather have, the negative or the positive? And so we give the dog autonomy, actually, believe it or not, throughout the training process. And the dog, with this kind of learning environment, feels more confident from the beginning. Doesn't feel oppressed with the training process. And again, critical even in aggression management, that the dog, the, the dog should feel he is a team member. I'm the tango dance leader. He follows the tango dance, but he's got the autonomy to choose which way he wants to go. I supply consequences. I, as the team captain, set up the learning environment. But my canine friend, you got a lot of a lot of freedom here. Uh, you're not uh, a subject to my dominance in any way. A lot of choices. You're smart. Make the right choice. And so this aggression management is an extension of the basic principles of dog training that we bring up here in this book. So it's an extension of this book. Actually, in truth, they were both written as one book and through editing I was advised, let's cut this down so we have the foundation and then we have the more advanced application. And the third book, Franklin, is written about my best friend. Uh, I mentioned this last time, came out of Marines as a 19-year-old, um, eager young dog man, trained with me for 10 years, went off to develop 
and still overseas, uh, special warfare dogs. Uh, in fact, the original, um, and we may get into it and talk about later on the specific dog teams and the branch of the service, but he legitimately developed this concept of commando dogs, and he does still to this day oversee that. Um, his life, um, just, he just turned 52 years old. Uh, the book was written up through about uh, 45 years old. Uh, an unbelievable life. Uh, the book is actually based on his life and times, and it is, if you imagine, the principles of the application of dog training in real life combat dogs and police dogs. Um, so it's not a how-to book, but it really is a no kidding book. Dogs were used for this purpose and you train them to get to this level of function by going this route exactly. An exciting lifestyle to boot. So it's uh, almost, in his, I guess his life, uh, it's like watching a movie when you read this book and very specifically about highly trained dogs. Well, I, I I think I mentioned last time I've read your your first book, but not the subsequent two, and and you've graciously uh, put those in in the mail to me, so I I yes, look sir. forward to to reading those, and sure. uh, hopefully we can we can chat about those books at right. some point in the future. But your comments about the books sort of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week, which I'd like to just mention briefly. We talked about what you were what you were just saying that a, a lot of dog training is building that relationship between mm -hmm. the, the, the captain of the team and, and you call it the canine tango dance the person the the human the handler is leading that dance and, and the canine is following uh, the, yes. the 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 leader's uh, role uh, whether it's commands mm -hmm. or or otherwise but following the the leader's um footsteps so to speak okay. so uh, and, and like you said, it doesn't seem like it maybe at first, but by implementing these rules and showing the dog what the choices are, you are giving the dog some freedom because it knows what the choices are and it knows the consequences of those choices, good and bad. And so the dog actually, like you said, has some peace of mind when it knows it has the autonomy, it has the agency to make that choice uh, in, in its best interest. And, and you talked about this a little bit too. And I, 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 I want to, uh, just sort of recap before we get into the 10 steps here that dogs are sentient animals. They, they reason, they just don't reason to the depths that we do. And you have to understand their limitations and their abilities. And that, that takes a lot of practice between you and the dog getting to know your dog. Uh, so that's a lot of what I know that you do there at your training facility is teach the handler how to connect, how to communicate effectively with their dog. Is that, did I recap that? I didn't I know I didn't touch on everything, but that was sort of a bullet point uh, yeah. summation of some of the things we talked about last week. Alex, I think you did very well. And um, I, I, talking about the nuances of dog training, uh, talking about, uh, the un, the myriad details of this human-dog relationship, we could have this discussion for an unbroken month-long period. So to, <laughs> to put that in a nutshell, man, that's a challenge. But I think you did it a is. really good job. And let's say it this way, too. Old school, old days, we would say uh, master and dog. 
we would say dominant and subordinate. That's old school thinking. And you can, with that approach to dog training, you can accomplish uh, much, not as much as you can accomplish if you think of it as teamwork, dance leader, dance follower, captain, uh, lieutenant. Uh, you can, the dog is so much more capable and we bring out the most from a dog. Let me tell you what I just walked out of before I came in here. We have this beautiful little young border collie who's being taught to locate mold for uh, a particular company uh, out of Evansville. She came to us with real potential, but lacking in confidence, uh, lacking in courage, especially when exposed to new environments. So teaching her to um, locate mold and teaching her to have um, dependable uh, indications. Here is the mold. I recognize it. Here it is right there. That was the easy part of her training. The difficult part, bringing up that confidence, uh, getting her to focus in varied environments on the task at hand. And the real task at hand is what does a dance leader want to do in here? What? Where is the team captain going in there? Because I'm going to block out these other things. I'm going to focus on our tango dance. And I think our tango dance is going to center on mold. It's becoming her favorite smell because we have, through training technique, that's the idea, we have associated the bouquet of the most common molds. We have linked that with her most prized possession in the world, which is a chucket ball. So when now, her name is Daisy, when she smells mold, she sees mentally chucket ball. So when she looks for her chucket ball, she finds it when she smells mold. Ah, cool. And the, there's get her to ignore other odors, ignore other dogs and people and the disarray and environment and concentrate on the mold get her to focus on her task and ignore the other uh, interferences, that is dog training. And that began, honestly, began here. She did not, was not, it's called odor imprint. She was not introduced to the odor until these 10 steps were mastered, were smoothed. Because if I did not have a solid relationship built with Daisy around Team captain, dance leader, I decide where we're going and you follow. If I didn't have that solidly um, outlined, I can't then be specific about ignore the dog food smell, focus on mold. She said, mold? I have no interest in mold. Now, dog food, I can have interest in. I had to replace the uh, meaning of mold for her. We had to, again, develop a new association. There's no way to do that if I don't have her full focus. If I don't have her in the yes sir mode, what do you want to do? No way I can uh, do any kind of effective odor imprint. So all of dog training begins with this foundational knowledge 
I am not the only trainer, of course, that uh, brings about a basic obedience relationship with a dog before we get to advanced training. But here's what I would tell you is probably a little different about us. And I will tell you too, the 10 natural steps of training the family dog is a two-part um, a two-part how-to book based on five canine self-control exercises, five formal command directives. The second half of the book, healing, sit, lie down, stay, come. That's what most people think of as basic obedience. Makes sense to me. However, with the most productive approach to training, I'll tell you that those five formal commands, actually step two in the process. Step one is first establishing canine self-control, handler focus, and distraction management. If I don't have those three responsibilities solidly installed in my dog's makeup and our relationship, I can't do the high-end training. So Canine self-control really means energy and drive control. You say, so you quash the drive and energy. No, sir, the opposite. We, like I told you with Daisy, we had to build up her confidence, her drive. We needed to uh, help her be the most enthusiastic self she could be. Wow, we taught her. Don't use this energy to jump on Aunt Mary. Use this energy to find your orange round prey. Now, the manners consist of what most people recognize as good behavior in dogs. Composure, uh, that really is hang out, don't bother anybody in any way. So you might say, Alex, I know you've been through the training, but this uh, revisit is clarifying rather than redundant, I think. So you say, okay, composure, Hang out, don't bother. I tell him to down and stay. No, sir. I want much more freedom for my dog than that. Dog, you can stand on your head. You can pace back and forth. I'm good with all that. Don't bother me now. I am talking to my friend, Alex Uli. We're filming this podcast. I want you hanging out, not bother me. He said, what do you mean? Sit, stay, heal, whatever you want to do. Stand on my head. I'm good with that. Just don't bother me. And here's something else I need. Proximity to team captain. He said, okay, I'm not gonna bother you. I'm gonna let you do your film with Alex. I'm gonna be out in the waiting room. Wrong, <laughs> I need you hanging with me. But the freedom to be actually up on the futon with me if you want, on the floor, chewing on your bone, staring here, out the window, whatever you like, don't bother us. That's composure, food control. Um, and I want you to think of, let me back up a step, with the composure. Not only do I want you to be able to hang out and not bother, but there are many times I'm going to need to manipulate you and I need you to go with that. He said, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to need to clean your ears. I'm going to need to pick your teeth sometimes, brush you out, stick you with needles, clip your nails. He said, well, I don't like that very well. I don't like it very much. I bet. I can't imagine you liking me sticking with needles. However, I need you to go with it. I need you to be still while I tend to you to keep you healthy. He said, I don't understand why you need to hurt me in this way or make me feel uncomfortable. I understand that. I can't explain it to you. Here's what I tell you. I need you to go with this flow because this is part of our relationship. Composure. 
All right. Food control. Food control. I'm gonna, sorry to interject here. I just want to mention one thing. Uh, one observation I had when I went through the training, and I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. And this is uh, this applies to to the manners in general, and I think extends even in the, to the commands. Is that uh, the handlers have a hard time not talking to their dog, not giving them a command of some sort during this Definitely. manner phase. Okay. And, Critical. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think, again, please, you interrupt, interject, uh, redirect my focus anytime, every time you want. And this will help this podcast be more uh, fluid because once I get yammering, I, I'm telling you, it is a fault. I will yammer on and I will digress and you got to keep reeling me back in. All right. So uh, let me address that first. Then we'll uh, pause, let you interject, and we'll try to go that way. Um, overly communicate. Uh, working too hard to control your dog, very common. And that is backing off, relaxing, allowing your dog, allowing your dog to make decisions. One of the most challenging aspects of handler instruction that we professionals here at Duffy's have to face. Because most of us want to overuse equipment, hold them in place. Beat them up with commands. Sit, stay down, leave a drop. Look at me. Don't do that. So what you're really doing is saying, dog, I will take all the responsibility off your shoulders. I'll keep you restricted. I'll keep your mind busy. I'll beat you up with directives so you cannot make a wrong decision. I want my dog, any of my personal dogs, we want all of our clients' dogs to eventually end up being handler in tuned enough, self-controlled enough, distraction, you think of it as proofed, distraction proofed enough. I don't need equipment on you. I don't need to beat you up with a down stay. Hang out. If I need you, I'll call you. Come. That means sit in front. But I don't need you sitting in front of me when I'm talking to Alex Uli uh, on the podcast. But I can't have you out in the waiting room jumping on people. So the freedom to choose means very difficult task for the Alex Uli's of the world. Alex, let your dog choose. Yeah, but I think if I lose at least he's going to try to eat the pizza on the floor. I'm sure he will. And when he tries, we're going to have a quick, timely, impressive consequence, negative, leash and collar action, mechanical, not personal, not emotional. He's going to associate eating pizza off the coffee table with a negative consequence. He's going to repeat the exercise because he's not stupid. So maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it won't happen every time. Let me go back to the pizza. Again, negative consequence. Negative, I should say this, just negative enough to be impressive, to redirect your dog's focus, to rethink the situation, says the dog. Third time, he says, I think I'll eat that. Maybe I won't eat that pizza this time. Oh, son of a gun. Your choice of not eating the pizza, hands-free, loose leash, you'll get a bite or two for me. In fact, I may pick up the pizza and let you have a bite of it. But here's what we're conveyed to our dogs. When it comes to food control, you get to eat two things in this world. Only two things. Here they are. You can have anything in your food bowl. Not your house brother's food bowl. You can have anything 
from the team captain's hands. And also, I want to make this clear to all your listeners. You can have multiple dance leaders, multiple captains in the same family. That You can have uh, three or four people that we call primary handlers that have the same um, responsive relationship with the dog one to the other. And you can have secondary handlers. Oh, my adult son will let my dog out if I'm not there. My adult son uh, will feed my dog if I'm not there. But my adult son will not take my dog out to the park to do Frisbee, will not work my dog through obedience. Makes, makes sense? Primary yes. handlers, secondary handlers. But you can have multiple dogs. Okay. When it comes to, I'm going to put you up to real time again, an hour ago, working Daisy the mold dog, the mold detection dog. Even for professionals, Daisy's approaching the series of scent boxes looking for the magic smell. Very, very critical here. Crucial that the handlers, the trainers do not indicate to her, good girl, you're almost there. Oh, I like that. Did you pause? If you talk too much, if you praise uh, too quickly, if you command too heavily, now it becomes the handler's responsibility to find the mold rather than the dog's. The hard part is all too often, let the dog make a decision. And then we, timely fashion, supply the meaningful consequence that's appropriate for the decision. And that consequence could be very positive, could be very negative. But maybe now's the time, because this is all about shaping behavior here before we get into the actual command parts, but the consequences, positive consequences, paychecks for the dogs. Think of it as paychecks. Traditionally, for our civilian dogs, I'm not talking about high-order competition dogs. I'm not even talking about scent detection dogs like Daisy. Her biggest paycheck is the chuck it, the prey, the bouncing prey, the prey she gets to chase and hunt and find. All right, that's upper level training. Let's talk about for the average listener, three forms of paycheck for the average family dog. Verbal, meaningful, that means positive emotion connected words delivered to your dog. Good boy. Now, same words, no emotion connected. Listen to this. Good boy. Let's move on. Wow, dog said, was that supposed to make me feel good? I didn't pick up any energy from that. So yeah. that meant nothing. When you praise your dog, it must be connected to genuine energy, positive emotion. All right. So praise, physical touch, and that can be soothing touch. Heavy, single stroke causes a dog to take a breath. Uh-huh. Reboot his mind. Regain his courage for the next exercise, maybe. All right. Caress, touch, tactile, uh, paycheck can also be rapid stimulating touch. I'm getting the dog fired up to go into something very intense. So I want him revved. So two forms of tactile paycheck. So audible paycheck, connected emotion, tactile paycheck. Uh, slow and heavy for soothing, uh, rapid and uh, intense for stimulating. Third paycheck, food, food. Food. I can't tell you how many times we have to deal with this. Oh, we don't use food with dog. I want him to work because I'm the boss. I want him to work because he respects me. I want him to be trained by command. I got that. 
I'm telling you, the most highly trained dogs in the world, that the, the uh, in fact, most impressive, responsive dogs in the world, most of them work for food in the proper, uh, with the proper delivery, in the proper amounts. We don't use food to lure dogs through courses. We don't use food for bait. Food is a bonus to good boy. Wow. Like that. Oh, and by the way, there you go. A timely little pea-sized bit of soft, tasty dog food. Man, oh man. That just, in fact, think of it as sweetens the pie. So he says, I love working for Alex because we're tight. He makes me feel good with his words and his touch. And Alex fixes me up with some sweetness from time to time. Bonus. <laughs> That's right. Yep. And those three paychecks are the motivation to get the dog through most of the training. In fact, let's put it this way. The paychecks, the incentives, the majority of the reason why the dog does what we want him to do. However, I'm going to put you in a natural, a dog, in a natural decision-making position. I, I walk outside. Uh, just minutes ago, we have a stand of uh, walnut trees out in the back of our property. So I'm going to take my dog out there, let him uh, shake his leg a little bit, uh, I relieve himself, okay. And I need him to be close to me because there are other dog walkers out there. We're conducting training out in that yard. All right. So I tell my dog to heal. And that means I need his neck with my leg as we walk out to the bathroom area. Walking out through the walnut trees, there are always squirrels, always squirrels. And they'll cut and run, explode up the trees, chatter. If I say to my dog, healing, if you heal, if you heal neck to leg, which is restrictive and boring compared to chasing a squirrel, if you heal, I will pay you. I'll tell you you're a good boy. Or you can blow me off and go chase an exciting squirrel and maybe be fast enough to grab him off of a tree. Oh, my God. He said the thrill of that, the thrill of getting that squirrel, the thrill of chasing that squirrel, that blows as far as titillation, excitement, reward, that blows your praise out of the water, man. He said, I'd much rather chase the squirrel than get the pet. And I say, you're right. So this isn't enough incentive to keep you here. How about if I dump some emotion on you too? Good boy, hang with me, man. He said, I love that, team captain. Love your touch. That's still in the sweet enough pie for me because I'm telling you, I maybe I'll catch this squirrel. Oh my God, I'm gonna pull out the stopper. This I've is got the a fresh one. piece of fried bacon, and I've got tactile stimulation, and I've got stimulator soothing words. I've got all three. He said, I understand. Still, let's put it in graph style. The thrill, the reward of chasing a squirrel. This is a reinforce. It's going to reinforce behavior because it's uh, going to promote more of it, whatever it is. That reward, oh, man, that's high. That is a high stimulation level. Here's where my physical touch is for it. Add verbal praise. Add the bacon. Uh-oh, I still got a problem. Now, remember, he's smarter than a turtle. What would he rather do? Well, it's clear, chase the squirrel. You're exactly right. What else can I do to make healing with me more 
rewarding. Okay, how about if I add some cheese to the bacon? Um, I will kiss him on the forehead. Uh, I will uh, bring out his favorite toy. Look, yep, that definitely sweet the pie. There's still there's still a gap here. There's still missing stimulation to make the choice obvious. Healing is the best the best choice for me right now when clearly he says, I'm smarter than a turtle. Nope, it's chasing the squirrel. So you say, how do we ever get a dog without restraint uh, to hang at heel, walking past a squirrel if you have a predatory driven dog? Because some dogs don't care, don't give two snots about squirrels. My dogs tend to be highly predatory. They're working dogs. How do I get my dogs to heel past a squirrel when all I have to offer them falls short of what the squirrel has to offer. Here's how. Until this level gets here, he's never going to choose heel over squirrel. You say, but Matt, you pulled out the stoppers. You can't get it any higher than that. You're right. There's only one way to get him to ever choose healing over squirrel. Oh, there we go. You say, what'd you do? I lowered the value of chasing squirrels because I couldn't put his paychecks at any higher level. I couldn't make them any more valuable. So I lowered the value of chasing squirrels. That's where negative consequence comes in. That's where appropriate, I need to speak about this very briefly and I'll pause and let you interject a comment question. Negative consequences. And there's no such thing in the dog world, the dog training kingdom of always every time, never. Uh, it's a bad trap for a professional dog trainer to get into. So in the vast majority of cases, incentives alone, not going to get the job done. Not if you want real world, hands-free assurance, dependability in your canine partner's response. I also need a measure of negative consequence appropriately timed and delivered to make the decision process clear for my dog. Which way, which direction, what response profits you the most? He said, well, it looks like to me healing. Exactly. But before appropriate training uh, application or consequences, both positive and negative, he said squirrel. That's the appropriate choice. You know what you have to say? Can't argue with you there. Uh, because the squirrels have more to give you than I do. All right. Here's how we devalue the squirrels. He says, as we're healing out to the walnut trees, hell with your heel, I'm going after the squirrel. He said, I know I am dumping the opportunity for good touch, good words, good food, but the squirrel's more exciting anyway, so I'm not merely missing out. Hell with the heel, I'm running towards the squirrel. The moment he makes that commitment, he's choosing squirrel over handler, I need to connect, associate, supply, an unpleasant experience that is not frightening, that is not injurious, that is not uh, hostile, because I don't want shutdown, injury breakdown, or fight back. I just want to make the squirrels less attractive. That's where the tools come in. Standard equipment, six-foot leash and slip collar. So I'm going to start with that. I have a loose leash in my hand 
the first times I approached the walnut trees. He's got a Drake leash hooked to the slip collar, already taught him to heal away from squirrels. That's important too. There's so many details to the training process that we're not going to go over, not on this podcast, but maybe eventually. Introducing concepts, teaching, reinforcing, proofing begins not in the tough arena. It begins in an arena I can manage. Just enough distraction to make us challenging. In the beginning, no distraction. I want the dog to focus on me. I want Daisy to focus on the smell of the mold bouquet. I don't want dog food distractions and people in the way right now. Later on, I have to, to proof this. So, assuming my dog knows how to heal, loose leash, walk out through the walnut trees. He said, keep your praise. I'm blown off heel. I'm running towards a squirrel. The moment he commits, I supply a quick, uh, rapid snap of my leash and collar. And he said, wow, what, man, that that redirected my focus. What do you need? Dude, I need heel. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, that's right. But I remembered you don't have anything to offer me more than the squirrel, so I'm going back to the squirrel. That makes sense to me. I'm not angry. You're a dog. I understand why the squirrel's so enticing. My job as your team captain, though, is to make sure the squirrel doesn't win out when I say heel, or else I can't take him public. Now, we're going to talk about Forge of Freedom. I want the freedom to take my dog in public. Uh, if I have a service dog, I need the freedom to have his dog with me. Okay, as soon as I say that, as soon as the service dog team says we're certified, here's what you're assuring uh, Alex Uli. When you're at the park with your dog, my dog will not interfere with you. When I go in the coffee shop, my dog will not disrupt the coffee shop. So I am accountable, I'm responsible, I'm obligated to make sure I earn the freedom because I will not interfere with your enjoyment, with your rights. Is there is that not parallel with uh, firearm ownership? I want the freedom to carry a firearm. Okay, make sure you're accountable. Make sure you're trained. Make sure you're licensed, background checked. Don't pull this gun out and shoot in inappropriate places. So to gain the freedom, you, have, you should earn the freedom. You should be accountable. Same thing with dogs. So my dog makes a second attempt to go after the squirrel. Two leash and collar corrections. Very quick, very rapid. Pow, pow. You say, Matt, what did you say when you did that? Nothing. This isn't personal. You said you told me audible and tactile when you rewarded. Yep, I did. I want the praise to be personal. I don't want the correction to be personal. I want to be mechanical. I want him to think only about squirrels. Negative. Squirrels. Negative. Not Matthew. Negative. Matthew. Negative. Make sense? All right, so now, yep. if I'm timely and I'm effective, I will lower the value of the squirrels to this point. I don't need correction anymore. He chooses heel. He said, I'm with you, Pop. Good deal. I'm with you, Captain. Great. I'm going to pay you now. He said, wow, what a good choice I made. I avoided the negative and gained the positive. I'm smarter than a turtle. Why wouldn't I do that every time? I got to be ready every time to prove to him, though, this wasn't a fluke consequence because of Sunday afternoon. I'm ready every time I approach those walnut trees, time and time and time and time and time again, until finally he says, you know what? There's no exception that real is. Nope. When I say heel, squirrels are always going to be lower value than the heel. That's the essence of dog training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think your example uh, of the dog with the squirrel perfectly encapsulates this sort of concept of, of balanced dog training, right? Where you're trying to supply... Yeah. A consequence that takes the squirrel down below 
the positive associations he already has with you. Uh, and you're not trying to apply too much so that it takes the spirit out of the dog so that it ruins the relationship with you. Uh, but you're trying to supply just enough to change the dog's behavior. So, Very good point. Uh, and Alex, if we put that in the terms of interest, I just need the interest in Squirrel to be just below the interest in healing. No interest in Squirrel, not the goal. It's not the goal. I want him to notice everything in Squirrel. I want him to say, hey, the squirrel's running up a tree. But what are we going to do, man? Here's what we're going to do, man. So it is this approach to he's a dog. And like I told you with Daisy the Mold detecting Border Collie, we want confidence. We want her excited to get up in the morning and get busy. That's why it's our training approach is the opposite of heavy-handed. It's the opposite of master and subject, the opposite of that. It's the opposite of dominant and subordinate. We are going to work as a team. We lead the dance. You love to dance, but we lead. You don't. And also, you can think of it this way. Um, the best dog trainers in the world are the calmest people. They are attentive, genuine facilitators. The best dog trainers are not the reactive, boisterous, heavy-handed type. Now, that type can still get response from the dog, not like a calm, reassuring facilitator can. So building confidence, building drive, while you build handler deference, very important concept, defer to me before you launch. Building drive, building confidence before, while you're building self-control of the dog. Building drive, building confidence, while we build this conditioning around distractions. That's what we're doing. And the higher, the more you expect from your dog, the more important this is. So you say, well, I just want my dog to be a couch potato. And, and when he's in the living room, come on, I call him. Okay. You, you don't have much to worry about there. That's going to be pretty easy. He said, no, I want my dog, Daisy, the border collie, to find mold in commercial buildings she's never been in before in tight, creepy places. Wow. She's going to have to have all this in balance. You know what else she's going to have to have? She's going to have to have a burning desire. And I'm going to say the word burning again. Burning desire to please her captain. You say, why would she do that? Because the captain's established a relationship based on smart choices centered around me. I'll tell you another little secret. The best dog trainers know this concept. There are three steps to the training process, not two, not one. No way to combine the three. Three distinct steps. Step one, teach the dog what you mean by this word, this concept, this exercise, this responsibility. During the teaching process, the dog can't be wrong. There are no corrections here. He doesn't know right from wrong. I'm showing him how to sit, how to walk on leash, how to stay. I'm doing it with him. I'm showing him how to crawl, how to lie down. We do it with our dogs. So modeling for my dog, very important. In any case we can, we'll model. Doesn't always work because we can't do some things that we need the dog to do, but modeling is important. Teaching the dog is doing it with the dog minus negative consequences. Still reward, 
but no negative consequences. Second step dog training, reinforcing the exercises taught. So now we say, dog, we've done it with you. We've done it together. You've been successful for 10, 30, 50, 100 times. Now I know you know what I want. So it's on you now. When I say sit, and he said, eh, I don't think I'm going to. Okay. Negative consequence. Dude, what was that about? Hey, remember I said sit? Oh, yeah. You said, good boy. That's my kid. So careful to teach without negative consequence means we're going to keep the dog in a very calm, positive, receptive frame of mind. Anthropomorphizing, humanizing the dog is a very effective training tool as long as you don't let it get carried away. And this is a very important concept. Dogs being the sentient beings that they are, don't process information well when they're panicked, when they're angry, when they're worried. We want a calm mind in our human student and our canine student in order for the information to seat well. That's why responding to a dog's choice in an emotional, scary fashion, angry fashion, violent fashion, especially when you're the team captain, scares a dog, uh, upsets a dog, angers a dog, worries a dog in a state of mind, he's not processing well anyway. So what you just did was shoot yourself in the foot. You wanted to really learn this, so you got upset. Oh, well, now he's not going to learn well. Now, you're definitely going to have to revisit. Calm, as tough as that is, is critical to this training process. So now again, teach. Reinforce means your choice. Uh, we did it with you. We modeled. Uh, you, you got clear understanding. Now you choose. You want the positive or the negative outcome, you choose. Reinforcement. Third and final step. Third and final step is proofing for reality. And that means distraction conditioning, distraction management. No place in this world, my dog's name is Occam, no place in this world, Occam, we're going to go that doesn't have distractions. Human kind, food kind, animal kind, dog kind, which is competition. Dog distraction different than squirrel distraction. Predator, prey distraction, competition distraction. But the point is, no place I'm going to be with my dog where there's not distraction. So if I teach well and I reinforce well and he responds like a human being, cool. He's not prepared to go to the park. He's not to pre prepared to go to Bass Pro Shop until I proof him around distraction. If a dog is not afforded these three steps in the training process, the trainer did not do his job. Shame on the trainer. You did not prepare him for real life. You have now set this dog up for failure and it's not his fault. And it's unfair to the dog. And I, if you don't mind, I'm going to step aside and make one comment about our process here. And, oh, and, absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm not of the mind to say all dogs are born in this world innocent, cooperative, tractable creatures like people. Not the depth of emotional complexity, not the depth of uh, reasoning, but there's still emotions, there's still reasoning. Dogs come into this world across the board in myriad forms, variety, extremes in temperament and disposition from the most docile to the most combative. You say, yeah, but the most combative, he was pushed that way by improper handling. No, sir. 
I'm talking about assessing litters at weaning age. And a little combative fellow stand up right now. He said, you roll me over and I'll bite your hand, man. He said, well, who abused him to make him so combative? Nobody. In fact, the breeder is paying me to help her decide what to do here, what happened. I want to sell these dogs as companions, and I'm going to have a hard time with this. She surely didn't bring this about. So my point to that is, when we're dealing with dogs, the approach here is that all dogs are not the melt-in-your-hand types, and therefore, when you start on your training journey, you have to assess the dog for what he is, and set realistic bars of expectation so that you know how to do the teaching, reinforcing, proofing in the proper manner to reach the goal that maybe is not as high as the goal you had for your last dog because that's not fair to this dog. He can't get there. And it's not fair to a dog who comes into this world insecure to think, I'm going to push you through as fast as I pushed through my secure dog last time around. Wrong. Preparing these dogs for real-world application means taking into consideration what kind of personality I have. What are my dog's strengths and weaknesses so I know how to factor this into the process of training so I have a realistic end goal that we can both be happy with? Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I, th- I think uh, I'm interested to get your take on this. Obviously, we're not here to talk primarily about dog selection, but I think a lot of times people just, by example, they'll see the the heroic German Shepherd or the heroic Belgian Malinois in a movie and yeah. immediately think, oh, we we need we need to go get one of those dogs for our family, and they're extremely high drive dogs yeah. uh, or can be anyway, and uh, I think they underestimate uh, the amount of work and dedication that it's going to take to build that relationship and uh, and to go through that process of teaching, of reinforcing and uh, proofing that dog to, to live with you and to live in the environment uh, that you live in. Uh, yeah. Would you mind to say a little bit about that? I'd love to. I think you touched on a very important topic. Um, and again, all these things you bring up are part and parcel of um, our dog training world because, excuse me, successful dog training is really about instructing the owner, the handler. Um, In fact, we put it to you this way. Instruction for the handler is so important. If you left your dog with me for a year and I trained this son of a gun and he works like a machine and I can demonstrate him doing any number of complicated exercises, but you, Alex Uli, take no instruction, you're not going to get much out of him at home. You said, well, I saw what he could do. Man, he works like a machine for me. I'm a professional tango dance leader. I, that's what I do for a living. I'm going to get the best out of your dog. If you don't learn how to dance smoothly, he's not going to be able to dance with you. And it's not really his fault so much. You don't lead the dance very well. Here's how important the handle instruction is. If I never see your next dog. You said, Matt, I'm going to come with you with our, my next dog, but I'm not going to bring the dog to you. I'm coming by myself. No dog. Teach me how to train this dog at home that you'll never see. I can do that. We have plenty of dogs here. I'm going to coach you through the process, let you work on the generic approach. 
We're going to talk about your dog's personality so that you can be specific when you get home. You can be very successful, Alex. So when we talk about dog training, it's all about understanding how to communicate effectively with dogs, how to communicate effectively, how to set these goals, how to teach, reinforce, and proof properly for the personality, canine personality that you selected. Now, let's talk about the, uh, <laughs> the subject of, wow, uh, you can think of it often too as the uh, Lassie syndrome, really dates me, uh, but watching Lassie on film, you think, oh man, that's what we need. Whoa, wait a minute, let me tell you about Lassie. There were six Lassies to make a Lassie film. There was the really good barking Lassie. There was a really good jumping Lassie. There was a really good obedience Lassie because what you saw as a uh, conglomerate, what you saw as the total Lassie uh, on the film was a perfect animal. There is no such thing. There is no perfect animal. So <laughs> I have a very good friend, very good friend for many, many years, for decades, has wanted a German Shepherd just like mine. And think of my dog as a uh, Czech Shepherd, a 70 pound ball of intensity uh, imported uh, from Europe, uh, all about uh, working. A happy dog, confident dog, a devoted family dog, but he likes to fight bad people. Uh, he likes to track or find lost people. He likes to find explosives. He likes to work obedience and jump. He, he just wants to move. He wants to do. Alex, even at 10 years old, he likes to do. Now, this good friend, and this is really a true story, don't need name, has hounded me to get him a dog like mine. Look what I said for 25 years. No, not for me. You're not, getting a, you're not getting a dog like mine for me because you only appreciate, my friend, you see the finished product. You see the maintained dancing relationship. You're an executive. You don't even like dog hair in your pants. You're not <laughs> going to have the same results. You're going to have a nightmare. You're going to buy a dog that demands to be worked every day. You're not going to put in the time and he's going to take over. He, because you know what all dogs say? All dogs want, all dogs need. They need leadership. Whether it's them or somebody in the pack or the family, somebody must be in control. Somebody must be leading or there's anarchy. There's, there's insecurity. There is, uh, there's a panic. We don't, there, there's dysfunction. Dogs need leadership to be calm and uh, truthfully, uh, fully expressive. To be their best, there's got to be leadership. So if Alex Uli doesn't step up to be the dance leader, especially a working shepherd, Malinois, a Dutch shepherd, uh, any number of the working dogs, uh, the giant schnauzer, they're going to step up. So, okay, anybody here want that leadership job? Okay, I guess not. I'll take it. I'll take it because we mm -hmm. got to have a leader. This friend of mine, he's a good dude, intelligent, and you know, he's a good team member. He's not going to invest the time to be the canine tangle dance leader. He's not. He's not going to invest the time to be the team captain for this working dog who demands it. And this working dog says, if I'm the captain, I choose what kind of job I want. He says, you know what I think I want to do? I want to run the neighbor off his property because he's too close to our property line. And he comes out with that irritating little dog. 
He said, I'm going to take care of both of them. And my friend would say, no, I don't want you to do that. It's not about you. I'm the captain. Here's what I decided. And I've got a job to do. He said, I'm itching, burning to do something. And this friend would say, why can't he just chill out? Because if you bought a working dog, you paid for excessive energy, excessive drive, excessive courage. You paid for excessive physicalness. Think of that. You paid for physicality. You paid for a tough dog. He said, I'm not bothered by anything, man. And he said, I wake up every morning vibrate with energy. I want to do something. How about this? You say, okay, this border collie, for instance, that we're working with, she comes from real working stock. Her downtime when she's chilled out is vibration. Whoa. This is, she chilled out. She's vibrating. You think, why? Because she comes from a long line of herding dogs. You know what that means? I'll run all the way out in that pasture. And I'll herd up. I'll circle up those animals. I'll get them in. I'll get the strays. I'll make sure they get in. Then I'll go back out and get the other group bring them in. Then I'll take them back out. I'll work all day long. If you don't work me, I will go insane. I will lose my mind because through selective breeding, we have chosen the most driven. We have chosen uh, for a particular purpose, the most energized, the toughest version so that we can be assured this job is going to get done. And I've taken a male that shows those characteristics and I've bred with a female that has those characteristics. And now their combination, I pick the most driven puppy and I breed him with the most driven puppy from another litter. You say, wow, through selective breeding, we've created some monsters. Yeah, we sure have. But man, they're, they can be wonderful monsters. Uh, to me, I don't do, I've only done uh, actual herding training uh, with a couple dogs in my career, so it's not my forte. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. You watch dogs that, that are bred to herd and train appropriately. Oh my gosh. It, there's nothing more uh, awesome in the dog training world to me than watching that happen. And then you say, I agree with you. And I think we mentioned this last time. I want a herd. I want a dog to herd with me. And I think Siberian Huskies are the most beautiful dog in the world. So I think I'm going to get a Husky and teach him to herd. Good luck. He's not going to herd like those dogs you see in the video on YouTube. That's, that's not happening. Um, yeah. My friend, he wants a partner. Actually, think of it as a, uh, he wants the bodyguard image. But I want this bodyguard image also to be a couch potato most of the time. Not going to happen. Uh, I want a bodyguard who's sensitive and easy to train. Not going to happen. Uh, I want a bodyguard who is not going to uh, challenge me for authority. Not going to happen. You see, if you want, you have to decide what you want. You want a bodyguard? Yeah, you're going to get a tough personality, driven, energized, and demands training. Or you can get, um, you can get uh, a, a soft, um, again, any number of dogs. I'm just going to pick this dog because it's now ubiquitous. I'm going to get a, a sensitive, small, golden doodle who doesn't require much to hang out on the couch with him. That's a much better choice if you predominantly want a couch potato. If you need a bodyguard, if you need a search and rescue dog, you need energy. You need confidence. You need physicality. You need drive. And that's not necessarily easy to live with. But the truth yeah. of it. And like you said, 
I think you called them uh, wonderful monsters, yeah, or they can be <laughs> wonderful monsters. If, yes. if their energy is channeled in a useful way, and that's the key, right. is, is channeling their energy in a productive, positive way. What an appropriate word, yeah. channel. Behavior shaping, channeling drive and energy. It's not quashing anything. Uh, we do extinguish. Uh, we do put on back burner behavioral tendencies that are not our choice. But altering dog's character, nah, we can't do that. Uh, even if you wanted to pay me double, I can't change that dog's personality. That's what he came into this world with. In fact, uh, I think this is a good analogy for us at this point. One we talk about with all our clients. When we assess a dog, especially for a demanding task, service dog, or uh, even uh, any kind of competition dog, search and rescue dog, uh, but all dogs we assess on the free evaluation when people come in. And that's the first step to any dog training with us. It's free, it's an hour's worth of chat, hanging out with the dog. So we, as the instructor, can assess what kind of canine personality we have. And based on what mom and pop want, What's the best route to take in training to get there? And is the want, the training goal, realistic for this personality? Okay, so now with that concept, we're in one of these evaluations, one of these assessment sessions. Here's what I tell folks. What I'm essentially doing, in a very simple analogy, is opening the canine toolbox and look at the tools God put in there. What tools? Again, temperament, disposition, uh, character. What tools did God put in this particular canine toolbox? Oh, I see. Uh huh. I've got a hammer and I've got a level and I've got a square. Okay, I, I, I see the tools. And my friend who wants a dog like mine says, you know what? That aggressive hammer is uh, it's too big for me. I want you to take that aggressive hammer out and put a small hammer in there. I can't take God's tools out of that box. God put them in there. He said, okay, I got you. You can't take tools out. I want you, Matt, to put a really heavy planer on top of that hammer so he can't pull that hammer out of the box. I can't put tools in God's box. I can't take tools out. I can't put tools in. All I can tell you is here the tools are in there. Based on these tools, hammer, square, plane, we can build something with wood. He said, Matt, I, I really want to uh, work on this. A diesel truck out here. Sorry. This canine toolbox isn't wired, isn't set up to work on trucks. It's set up to work on wood. You said, but I'll pay you double if we get this toolbox to work on the truck. Sorry, can't. Not going to happen. That's our job to help people understand this is what came in your canine toolbox. No matter yeah. what you wish for. Now, no matter what you want to get out of it, here are the tools. And they vary. Every toolbox varies at least a little bit. One toolbox to the next. Is that not unlike or any different than human beings? Many similarities, a lot of us. Uh, many differences, a lot of us. But even those of us that are most closely uh, fashioned, still unique, still different. I open Alex's toolbox. It's different than Pop's. Yep. Uh, different than Matthew Duffy's. Yep. And it's important to look at dogs that way, too. And that's what the whole sentient being is the assessment's all about. This is not a robot where we take out this circuit board and put in this circuit board. Dogs are living beings. We have to assess the tools, the creator, 
the divine ground, God, nature, whatever your beliefs are, put in the box. We cannot change what's in the box. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great, great point. And I think that goes to part of our conversation from the last episode where we were talking about right uh, understanding the dog's limitations and abilities. That's, that's yes. part of it. Understanding what tools, what abilities, what limitations that dog has and accepting the dog for successful, Yes, sir. In order to be successful and in order to be fair to the dog and to the handler. Because if you don't assess that correctly, you're going to be frustrated. If you don't assess, it, assess the, the toolbox correctly, you're going to be frustrated and the dog is going to be frustrated and the end product is going to be substandard, period. And yep. these tools are what we use in fashioning, shaping the dog's behaviors, his tools. Now, uh, if you like, um, interject any questions you have or any comments, but I can walk you through these 10 steps and based on everything we talked about now, what we're looking to gain from this dog. Yeah, I think, I think it's a perfect time to do that. We've talked about obviously building the relationship. We've talked yep. about the equipment and, and building, uh, knowing the dog and, and leading the dog, uh, learning the tango dance. Uh, so I think now it's, it's a, in shaping new behavior. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a good, a good time. Well, I'd, I'd like to mention, uh, before we get into the 10 steps, um, that we talked about this, I think it was before the show last time that this book, uh, and it's not a, a small book by any stretch, but this book, it's really just the bullet points of, of dog training, right? There's so much nuance to, to all of this. And in this podcast, we're not even getting to everything that's in the book. No. Okay, so I, I want people to, to understand that, that, that we're giving people sort of the high level, the big picture here about, you know, building a relationship and training the family dog. So uh, I just want to kind of give that little disclaimer here. We certainly uh, would encourage our listeners to, to buy the book. I think that's a good next step after listening to this podcast. But then there is no substitute for in-person training to learn that that tango dance, the canine no, tango dance. No, it's not. In fact, that is a, a good way to put it. You can learn how to tango dance from a book. You can learn how to tango dance from a video on YouTube. It is far more challenging with those venues compared to buying instruction from a human being, and he will actually, she will guide you through the steps, place your feet, lean you into the moves so you get to experience them. There is no substitute for that. You know, the best way to learn how to tango dance is to buy a book, watch the videos, and take instruction. Same thing in our field. And so here's what we say this book is. It's your coach at home. This is the coach at home. And the eight faces of aggressive behavior, I think of as assertive behavior, is an extension of this more in-depth discussions in the book about what lights this dog's tender. Why is he doing this? And why is it so important for me not to say no? Why is it so important for me not to show display uh, displeasure when I correct my dog. More discussion in the Eight Faces book because those two books were meant, were written as one and then we separated the two. And I'll tell you, I may have, for all six people interested, I may have one more book in me to write. And this, my fiance just 
suggested this not too many weeks ago. A book with this format-ish, Beyond the Ten Natural Steps. It's a lot of these details that we'll get into with uh, in-person instruction, maybe put that into book form for those people that say, but why would I do this? Why is, how about this? Where does a clicker come into training? Do you all use clickers? Matthew Duffy, the dog, Duffy's Dog Training Center? We sure do. They're actually called more appropriately markers or bridges between, and you can think of this, behavior and reward, action and reward. When I need to be spot on with my reward, I need it to be instantaneous. I can't get there to touch him fast enough. I can't get there to feed him fast enough. I will click once I have called what is termed charged the clicker. Once I make the clicker important, now when my dog does his behavior and I hit click, he said, wow, that was the right move because I heard click and click is associated with food typically. So learning how to use those tools and why they work will take uh, many more pages than this. And again, this is this book is set up, like you said, just to present the bullet points, the guide to coach at home. The Eight Faces expands on that, and it is, for us, a process of thinking that's developed with these 10 natural steps, 10 steps, five handling manners, the foundation for your training, composure, food control, visitor control, which involves humans and animals coming into our proximity. I need you to handle a certain way. Expose anything of this open door control, and that means when we expose the threshold, what do I need from you, canine partner? Without commands, without restraint, what do I need with the doors? What do I need with the people and the dogs coming in our space? What do I need with the pizza on the coffee table? Again, coming for me with no commands, no restraints. I'm expecting these things. Last manners, and last of the manners, loose leash walking, typically on one side. Typically the left side, and there's reasons for that over the right, has to do with a right-handed society. But with walk, I need to be able to put the leash on my shoulder, abide by leash laws. Again, we're talking about freedoms here. I'd love, to, I love, I would love to take my dog to the public parks with no leash. Uh, but fair's fair. My dog is so well-trained, I don't need a leash. 90% of the dogs at the park are not well-trained. They need a leash or else they're going to interfere with my day, with my dog. So to be fair, forge a freedom, be accountable. All right, that means I agree to have a leash on my dog because I want all you guys to have your leash on your dogs or else they're going to be all over me and my dog. Fair is fair. All right, so now with walking, leash on, on my shoulder. Uh, he, he's, he'll stay within that six-foot radius. That's what casual walk is about. And it doesn't matter whether I'm running or pushing a stroller. When I tell my dog to walk casually on my left side, it's not heel, though. It's not neck to leg. He's got a lot more freedom than that. When I take my dog out to walk, I'll stop and let him uh, take a break. Let him urinate here. Not with healing. Healing is business. Walking is casual. We can walk for, in, uh, think of this, long distances and expect the parameters to be uh, uh, followed. 
Healing, much more demanding for a dog. That is a collar to semen pants position. Think of it that way. The radius in general has been reduced from uh, four to six feet down to about nine inches. And the dog's responsible for that radius. Keep that radius. That's your job. So four to six feet, kind of easy. And I can even watch butterflies while we do that. When we heal, wow. When we heal, keeping that nine-inch radius, he's really got to focus on the handler. That's mentally exhausting for a dog. Wrong for the handler to expect a dog to heal for three miles. Uh, you couldn't get a human being to do that well. So that's setting everybody up for disappointment, for displeasure, for frustration. So walk comes first. If he walks well, now I'm going to teach him how to heal. And heal is for safety. Crossing busy streets, walking through crowds of people. Heal is the ultimate and handler focus. But we mostly don't need that when we're casually going out for exercise at the park, going to get the mail. Walk doesn't. So composure. Hang out, don't bother. Proximity to handler. Proximity to handler, don't bother. Food control. You can eat anything in your food bowl or anything from your primary handler's hands. Nothing from my granddaughter's hands. Nothing from the cat bowl. Uh, and I don't need leave it, drop it, I, I, eyes, or stays to keep you out of it. Remember this autonomy idea? Freedom. Move around. Hang out. You choose what you'd like to do within the parameters I just set up for you. Visitor control means when a human or animal walks within our proximity, do not intercept that guest. Do not take charge of that guest. If I want a visit, that's a big word here, if. I want the visit, I'll invite the visitor to come to you. But in a lot of cases, I'm out in public, most cases, now. Nah, I don't need every strange human being pet my dog. So they come up and say, oh, what a beautiful little shepherd. Can I pet him? Nah, not really. He's working right now. I'll make up something. Uh, yeah, he, he's busy right now. Thank you, though. I have a good day. Uh, because when I go walking, I want my dog focused on the task more so than here comes people. I can't wait for the visit. I hope they want to touch me. I hope they want to visit with me. Uh, but occasionally I do let him visit. And again, it's the exposure to people that are, that's actually the socializing aspect. The exposure to the dogs is the socializing. The physical contact isn't needed for appropriate socializing. So composure, food control, visitor control, open door control. When I open the front door of the house, backyard gate or car door, without commands, without restraints, assume, my dog I'm talking to, assume Occam, you can't cross that exposed threshold. Even as I'm rolling the garbage can out through the gate, as I'm stepping out to the porch to paint a pizza man, he said, when do I get to cross? When I say outside, inside, walk or heal. So the manners are set up for this purpose. You, are responsible to main, to manage your drive and energy. You are responsible for checking with me before you launch into action. You are responsible for handling the distractions that come into our world. I don't need commands for this. Commands for another purpose. I don't need restraint for this. I'm not a hitching post. Don't use me for one. I don't want to have to drag you around like a burrow. That's not my goal here. Once I accomplish, dependable, not perfect. Perfect is never in our plans. Dependable, um, think of it as comfortable, 
response, uh, responsibilities in the manners realm, comfortable, dependable, self-control responsibilities. Once I get that established, now we move to the second half of the book. These are specific directives we need our dog to respond to. Healing, I described. I need to cross a busy street and walking, way too casual for this. I need your neck with my leg because we're going to run across the street. I need your neck with my leg. And when I get to the other sidewalk to stop uh, before I cross the next street, I want you sitting at heel. I need focus. I need maximum handler attentiveness, maximum self-control. That's what the formal commands are about. Healing, neck to leg. Sit is obvious, but what I don't want to do is confuse him with sit down. Now, I want you to sit down right there. Well, you're giving him so many words. Why not just sit? Make it clear. Sit on your hocks, on your haunches. Here's the important concept. When I say sit, I don't need stay with that to keep you there. Sit means sit until I say done, walk, heel, come, down. So until I change things, hold, sit until I say sit. Stay has a whole other meaning to it, which we'll get right to. Down. That is hocks and elbows on the floor. It doesn't mean get down off of. You could use for that, but then you need a different word for the prone position. But when I say to my dog, down, elbows and hocks on the floor. And you know what else I'm going to tell my dog? I'm not going to tell you three or four or five times to get you to the position. Remember the training process? Taught you. We did it together for 100 times, 100 repetitions. Now it's your choice. Do you want to or not to get your consequences? And I'm going to proof you around distractions gradually. So down means where I told you to down. Now, that's an important concept too. So remember when I say sit, sit until I say we're done. I don't need to stay with that. Down where I tell you, says, okay, I'm going to go down, but I think I'm going to the other side of the couch where little Billy's coming in the room. You missed the point. I want you to down here for a reason. And you hold that until I say we're done with that. Stay command. Here's what stay means specifically. Don't move. The handler is leaving. He said, what about if I'm in a sit? That means don't go down or don't stand up. Stay means lock up. Don't move. I'm leaving. If I don't intend to go anywhere, I don't need to stay. Sit keeps you sitting. Down keeps you down. Stay and keep you standing. Stay means specifically. I'm leaving. Don't move. Now, that takes us up to the final 10th step in the 10 natural steps. The biggie, one of the biggies, come when we call. When I say to my dog, he's actually trained in German. It doesn't really change anything. But when I say to my dog, come, I mean sit in front. Really, anytime a handler calls a dog, we teach that is sit in front of the handler that called you. So Alex says, is it Millie? Millie, yes. Okay. You call your dog. Millie, come. And Millie says, I, I heard you. I'm going to go right to Alex's wife and sit. Millie, you missed the mark. <laughs> you missed the point. Alex, call. I need you to sit in front of Alex. Yeah, but they both handle. Uh, they both expect that. But Alex, call. Sit in front of the handle of the call. That's what it means. It doesn't mean come, tag, and run off somewhere else. It doesn't mean come and get behind me. It means sit in front, very specifically. A couple reasons for that. We want the concept to be very clear in the dog's mind. And... That's where I have the most control, the best control. Uh, when I need to change out collars, uh, take something from the dog, give the dog something, I want to sit in front. All right, now, 
if you think about this, me, to kind of close things out here, truly define dog, a, a trained dog or goals of dog training in as few concepts as possible. Here they are. In essence, I need a dog to, in, and I'll, I'll break this into simple language. I need a dog to follow me. Again, that could be casual with me, could be heel, could be walk. I need a dog to follow me when I direct him to. I need a dog to go no further, lock up. You say, well, I tell my dog to sit or I tell my dog to stay or wait. Okay, I need a dog to follow when I say so. I need a dog not to move when I say so. And I need a dog to return to me when I say so. Whether I stay from a distance heel or I tell him to come or I stay with me. Those are the three concepts of a trained dog. Follow me, don't move, come and find me. So we break that into 10 steps uh, so that it's manageable to understand for dogs and new handlers, and it's manageable to teach for dogs and new handlers. Now I'll tell you something else, Alex. This concept of breaking manners into distinct exercises and establish that as a foundation for all dog training, even our service dogs, our, our mold detection dogs, our search and rescue dogs, they start with manners before we go to formal commands, before we go to higher skills. The manners, my brainchild or concept many years ago, before I put it in book form, to break into realistic understanding when people say, that's a well-behaved dog. Boy, that dog listens well. I like him because he's mannerly. What does that mean? Breaking it up into exactly composure, food control, visitor control, open door control, walking exercise. That's exactly what it means. I put that in form and put in writing and still we're one of the few training centers that understand that concept, that canine manners is the foundation for any other dog training. The skills, he'll sit down, stay, come, and higher skills, opening doors, bracing for somebody to support themselves on. Those are tiers of responses and understanding. And in the case of our basic obedience dogs, manners is the bomb. It's the foundation. If you have a dog well-managed with energy and drive, attentive to handler, and very adept at managing distraction, you've got a canine partner you can take anywhere. And the formal commands, just gravy on top. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's a great point. I, I, this, is, this was a breakthrough sort of point for me and my evolution as a dog owner uh, and a dog handler, because I think I talked about in the last podcast, my struggle sorting through the options there's a there's an abundance of options with respect to, to dog training and sorting sure. through the good and the bad and and uh, i think i mentioned that this balanced approach just struck me as sort of obvious because it's the way that we as humans learn uh yeah. and i think it was most when i tried it when i experimented with my dog it was the most effective with my dog but but your book and and your training uh, was the first time I'd really heard this distinction between manners and commands. Because yes. so often, 
so often uh, you go to a, an obedience class uh, at a pet store or anywhere. You jump right into four commands. Right into it. Exactly. You skip the most important parts, the, exactly. the, the building, the relationship, the and canine you know tango dance, the manners. Yeah. If you get those things, then you go to the commands. Everything and it, else falls just, into place. And I tell you, yeah. the older I get, the more I scream inside. How unfair for the handler and the dog to be thrown into heel, sit down, stay. Poor animal. He doesn't even have the concept of handler deference yet. Poor animal. Yeah. He can't even manage his energy. And you expect him to heal? You know, also think, poor handlers. Wow. How negative this is going to be for you. How negative dog training is going to end up being. And it could have been so natural, so positive. And uh, again, the one, the biggest shock to me, we have not seen more people um, mimic this approach uh, to capture the vocabulary we set up here and reproduce it in their own words. And you think, well, you know, it's intellectual property. Well, honestly, all I did was break down, define, and put in order is what I did. I, this is the cognitive order of progression here. This is what works for dogs and humans. Um, but I still think it's surprised to me that this isn't more a more natural understanding for more dog people. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. I, I, teaching him to heal before he walks on loose leash. That's not really smart. No, it's not. Yeah. 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 And I don't, I can't speak for other people, but for me, it was uh, incredibly enlightening and it just seemed, I felt almost embarrassed. How did I not realize this? sooner you know i'd gone to all these uh, supposed professional trainers and you know uh, read all this stuff online and this was never mentioned but it seems so obvious and and you uh just break down the fundamentals and, and I'll, I'll put it this way uh, an analogy I, I played sports uh played one of the sports that i played was basketball it's almost like giving a kid a basketball and say go first thing you, i need you to do is go out and try to make three pointers and that—that's—that's that's how you set up the the child for failure. And uh, yeah, and he says, "How frustrating! I'm terrible at basketball because I can't make three pointers." You say, "Dude, yeah. you don't have the fundamentals yet. No wonder yeah. you're disappointed." Let me build you up your drive and your confidence and your skills so that you're going to feel like when you're done with us, wow, I'm a master basketball player. Good deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Matthew, I've I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, again, mentioned the, the book, uh, of course, uh, 10 Natural Steps for, uh, for Training the Family Dog, uh, Building a Positive Relationship. And of course, you mentioned the, the other two books that you've got, which I look forward to, to reading and, and reviewing. Uh, I hope folks will che check out your website, check out your books. And uh, obviously, if they can attend your training in, in person, I'd, I'd highly recommend that as well. Is there anything you'd like to, to say in closing uh, before we cut this podcast to a close? Uh, really, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity. And I, I seem, even at 66 years old, not to tire from talking about the subject, but you are um, a, an intelligent, um, well-spoken host, and you make it even more fun uh, to uh, throw these topics back and forth. And I'd be honored to come back another time. We can move into the, uh, and again, it's a much more detailed 
how-to book managing this intensity in dogs, managing the aggression, and it will fall right in line with what we've done here. I'd be happy to do that for you anytime. We, we'd have to break it up into a couple podcasts too, probably, or else we're going to yeah. wear your listeners out. They're going to think, does this dude ever shut up? So <laughs> I, I'll work with you however you would like, okay? Well, I, I, I'm happy to, to have you take up most of the podcast. You're the guest. This this podcast, it's a, it's about you. I'm just here to sort of push the conversation along. So uh, that's well. how I see my role. That's how I see my role here. I appreciate that. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention before we close up, and you may have a, a few additional comments uh, based on on this. Uh, I love I love this last portion of your book. It's the just the last sure. few paragraphs. If if I can read it, is it okay with you if I read the last couple of paragraphs? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it says, uh, "Owning a dog is one of the richest experiences in many people's lives." Owning a dog can lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, and contribute to faster healing from surgeries and traumatic injuries. Owning a dog to walk with keeps people walking longer. Owning a dog can mean not coming home to an empty house. Owning a dog can mean having something to live for. I wish each reader the joy of owning a dog. Though owning a dog is expensive and dogs need care and uh, need for care a constant dogs still give back more than they take in their companionship and total loyalty to you. There are very few companions in the world you can say that about. And uh, I just thought that was so true. And it kind of brings us back full circle to, to sort of the forge of freedom, right? Uh, we talked about last time that yes. why freedom? Well, it's because freedom is the condition, the environment where humans can flourish and where dogs can flourish uh, if, if, when they're in a, a balanced relationship where the leader knows how to, to lead the tango dance. Uh, and I think that having a dog that, you know how to dance with is one of the most rewarding experiences you can have in life. Um, aside from maybe uh, marriage or, or children or, or having a good family, familiar uh, relationship with, with your loved ones. Uh, but at least for me, and I, I'm not speaking for others here, the healthy, positive relationship with a dog is incredibly rewarding. And I think that if people follow your guidance that you give in this book, people can have that that positive experience as well. And so I hope that our listeners uh, heed your advice, that they read your book and, and take it to heart, because I think that uh, they will be eminently rewarded for their effort. So, uh, I mean, yeah. All right, Matthew. Well, I think that's where we'll, where, where we'll leave it for now. And, uh, We'll, I'm certain. I'm almost certain that we'll uh, have you back on the show Love in the future to, to talk about your other books and and maybe yeah. get into some more s specifics as well. Maybe yeah. some frequently asked and, questions. And, and, yes, and we can always recap or bring the listeners up to speed. So they're stepping into podcast three. We'll give them the foundation to understand what we're talking about in just a brief summary as we go. But I'd uh, love to come back sometime. And again, um, like I mentioned earlier. I'll invite my nephew to come along too, a uh, uh, young and upcoming protege that I'd uh, be excited about giving some of his young man input and uh, the work he does with his dogs. Yeah, fantastic. I'd, I'd love to have you both on. Uh, well, Matthew, th thanks again. I hope uh, everyone enjoyed and learned a little something from our discussion. I'll, I'll link to 
his books, uh, to Matthew Duffy's books, as well as his website for his training facility there in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And of course, I'll link to our last episode, part one, in the show notes as well. Uh, I'd encourage everybody, I I do post these episodes on our website, forgeoffreedom.com, and I post uh, on YouTube, Rumble, Facebook, and all the most popular podcast streaming platforms so they're easily accessible. Uh, And of course, if you learn something, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.